spooky podcast. I'm Lucas Stock. And I'm Spook Nelson. And this is a spook cast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian spook. Join us as we discuss (laughs) and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our spookversity as members of Christ's church. Come one, come all. It is the closest thing to an exciting uh, tradition that I have ever helped come up with, which is the, say it with me now, fourth annual Heresy Month here on the Doxology podcast. We have been doing, not the podcast, we've been doing a dedicated themed month for four years now. Well, by the end of the month, it will be for four years. But this is the fourth, first episode of October that we've ever done. And so if you're new here, or if it's been a while, uh, well, I mean, it's been a year, but if you're new here or you forget, every October in celebration or, or you know, somewhat uh, acknowledging the, the Halloween-y, <laughs> spooky you know, uh, scary ghost stories that we love to tell um, as we enter into fall and leaves start to change and and we get our pumpkin carving sets and all that jazz and black cats and witches and whatever else. Um, We like to remember the spookier side of theology, which is heresy. Well, I mean, Um, pumpkins and and cats and those things are scary, but there's nothing scarier than bad theology. That's what we used to... There's literally past. nothing, nothing scarier than the bad theology that we have talked about in years past, and will continue as long as we both shall live and continue to do this podcast. Uh, I think this is the one thing I am confident we will not stop doing because it's always super fun. Um, I mean, it's just it's just a lot of fun, and it's it's cool. Because Halloween is a cool time of year. It's fun. Um, ghost store. I don't know. Have you have you gotten into like the spooky uh, vibe? I know we were talking about the weather before we hit record, but like, sort of coincidentally, I've been I've been on a real death like old school death metal kick. Huh. And um, Cannibal Corpse just released a new album, so I've been listening to a lot of Cannibal Corpse, and like <laughs> it's it's very fitting now that it's October. Um, so I don't know. Have you been doing any? Uh, have you been doing any like Halloween themed or or horror themed uh, activities as of yet, or are you still in uh, in summer mode? No, I mean, not. I wish I wasn't in summer mode. Like you said before, we hit record. I was telling Lucas how it was darn near ninety degrees today. Talk about spooky for. I mean, as as we're recording, it's October first. My my father in law invited us over to swim this afternoon. We we didn't, but I was like, man, it's October first. It's almost ninety degrees, and we're getting invited over to swim. So like in that sense, yeah, that's kind of spooky. Thinking about like maybe a callback to our episode with uh, um, Kyle Myard Scop uh, talking about climate change and climate action. I mean, perhaps having ninety degrees in October is a result of climate change. Who knows? Or it's just uh, unseasonably warm. Could be either. 
or both or none of the above but either way like uh, to answer your question no not yet like this time of year is my favorite time of year i love like my wife and i just got back from a walk and i love seeing the trees you know turn yellow but um yeah it's just cool seeing the trees change knowing that the season is changing uh, seeing the forecast for later this week and it's going to be like 50s and 60s and that's like quintessential fall weather here in Wisconsin. So yeah, I'm I'm in the mindset, but not yet like in the physical spatial space just yet. Um, but I'm sure that'll come in time. We have some like nightmare before Christmas themed decor and some other things that we will f- sprinkle around the house. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, Without any further ado, perhaps it's time we, we, we dive right into the, the deepest end of the deepest, darkest trenches of spooky theology. Um, I think it's worth saying, though, too, that like typically we've called this like heresy month. Um, that's not to say that everything we've ever discussed within the bounds of heresy month has been like outright blatant heresy, or at least not like, um, you know, officially in some sort of canon or some sort of synod or some sort of council, like condemned as heresy, even though we'd consider it really bad theology and bad teaching and errant. Um, I think that's worth saying that not everything that's discussed is like an actual, like textbook heresy that is considered heresy by the majority of the church. But today, um, I, I think it's fair to say that that is the case, that what we're talking about is heresy. If, you, if you've been around our podcast for a couple of years, as we've said, this is now our fourth installment of, of this Bad Theology Heretical Month. Um, two years ago, we did, I think it was our first week, so probably like, you know, almost exactly two years ago. And I'm remembering now that I, I, I re-uploaded this episode again, sort of in, in anticipation of this one and Spooky Month. So if you haven't listened to our episode on Pelagianism proper, you should go do so, whether it's the original from two years ago or the re-upload from last week. Um, but this week, we're, we're looking at Pelagianism from a different angle. Obviously, we've already talked about Pelagianism, so we're not here to rehash everything that was said in that episode. Um, instead, we're sort of doing like a, um, where does this make itself known today? Perhaps in semi ways, perhaps in pseudo ways, perhaps in even neo ways. Um, but... It, <laughs> I think it's worth at least saying at the outset what Pelagianism is. Again, you should go listen to the whole episode to get the whole context, but I sort of summarized it in in saying that Pelagius taught that human beings are born innocent without the stain of original or inherited sin. He believed that God creates every human soul directly and therefore every human soul comes into the world free from sin. There is no such thing as original sin and Adam's transgression did not result in a sinful nature passed down to all humanity. So this idea is foundational to Pelagianism. So again, one last time, feel free to go check out that entire episode to get a more in-depth discussion, more context on the nuance of what we're discussing here. Um, But Lucas, as it pertains to this idea of semi-pseudo-neo-redux Pelagianism, where do you you want to take this? What what were some of your introductory remarks? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. It's tough to know where to go. Um, because it, it could be just such a broad question or series of questions that we could ask. One thing that I think is worth, is worth noting is like, there's, we've talked about this before, um, in, in episodes like, um, Arianism and stuff where there are these old classic, you know, and when I say old, I mean, ancient classical heresies like Arianism, which taught that. 
Jesus is a created being that, you know, for 1700 years has been, it's been accepted that that is outside, outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. Arianism, you know, didn't just disappear, but like that, that was, that question was answered in terms of like, is this orthodox or not? A very, very long time ago, but it comes up again in different in different places. So we might look at um, Jehovah's Witness theology, where if you go and and just on their publicly available documents, and we've done an episode on this as well, like it's 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 obviously like slightly anachronistic to equate the two. Um, they're they're different, but um, Jehovah's Witnesses Christology is certainly Arian-ish. It's it's a uh, Arianite, if not you know explicitly like oh we really like Arius. Um, what they're teaching ends up being the same thing, and so there's there's that element of heresy where it you know Solomon once said there's nothing new under the sun, and a lot of times even something that's brand new in terms of an organization or a particular person who's gaining a, a platform or an audience teaching something or even a specific you know teaching itself that is new that ends up being uh, errant and heterodox or heretical it is probably not going to be something that just like popped up out of nowhere is totally brand new so when we're talking about something like pelagianism again we're looking at 1600 plus years where people have it's been accepted that Pelagianism is off limits to um, Christian orthodoxy. But that doesn't mean that there aren't places where you will find it, right? And, and this could be under a different name. This could be accidental. I'm sure there are people out there who are like, oh, no, Pelagius was, was simply misunderstood. He's actually right. Or he was understood, but he's actually just right. Uh, and we should have been listening to him and not uh, Augustine or Prosper of Aquitaine or these people who fought against his ideas or whatever. Um, but then there's also this sort of weird, more like, so, okay, so what I'm trying to say is like one angle to take, like sort of, you know, Pelagianism rearing its ugly head again. We could look at, you know, Pelagianism proper and then this idea of like, people who kind of inadvertently end up latching on to Pelagian ideas. So maybe you're not part of a heretical group. Maybe you don't even know Pelagius's name, but, you know, you find yourself uh, in your church, the, the teaching and the preaching, and when, when people ask you questions, the way you explain the gospel is that, um, you know, people are good, so we need to obey God by our own power, right? Like, that would be a very obvious example where um, you've arrived at this thing called Pelagianism. But then there's this other path to talk about, which I think might be more interesting, or at least to me, I don't know, is like this idea of what we might loosely call semi-Pelagianism. And again, even that is, it, it's tough to even say, loosely call it that, because semi-Pelagianism is actually like, you know, capital S, capital P, condemned, not in an ecumenical council, but condemned in local councils. Prosper of Aquitaine, this guy I mentioned just a second ago, is a big part of that. Um, 
in in Gaul, so like southern France especially, there there was after the Pelagian question was settled, there were uh, people, monks, bishops, theologians, who who started teaching things that were um, what came in later centuries historically to be referred to as semi-Pelagianism, where they weren't Pelagian. They didn't believe that um, the human will was uncorrupted by sin, and if you chose not to sin and you chose to obey God, you could um, get to you know perfection without uh, God's grace. They didn't. They didn't believe that. They they believed that you could only be saved by grace. That salvation was an act of God. Um, you know because of the original sin and all that kind of stuff. But what the reason they are semi-Pelagian is they maintained. And this is a very rough summary o- overview. Um, they maintained basically that um, that first movement of the will to desire salvation um, is completely naturally accessible to human beings. That is not a result of grace. And 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 um, I think it's the Encyclopedia Britannica article on semi-Pelagian points out, like, for a lot of them, this was a question of God's justice. Because if you didn't have the ability to want his grace under your natural condition, then for him to condemn you would be unjust. Um, and so I'm not just talking about this capital S, capital P thing. That's why like maybe pseudo or neo is a good way of putting it, where we've got Pelagianism and we've got like, you know, well-meaning Christians who are not careful in their theology. Maybe they're not well catechized and they sort of accidentally stumble into heresy. (laughs) Um, Not that they just wake up one day and accidentally are cut off from Christ's church, but just that they accidentally come to this idea that has already been condemned and and hopefully that that, that gets, you know, addressed and blah, blah, blah. Um, But then there's also the, the, you know, more specific condemned heresy of semi-Pelagianism, which opens the door to a lot of potentially squishy questions where now, you know, because it might be difficult for, say, a, you know, um, a reformed Protestant to look at a Roman Catholic. It might be difficult, if, if they're informed at all, to, to accuse um, the Roman Catholic of Pelagianism, <laughs> for their theology with any kind of intellectual honesty, if, if, if they know what they're talking about. But maybe somebody I don't like because I think that they are maybe de-emphasizing the grace of God in salvation or they're overemphasizing the human will or they're overemphasizing the importance or role of human works as part of salvation. Um, maybe they're semi-Pelagian. So it's, it's, it opens the door to, it's, it's a lot easier to accuse someone of being half something than being completely that thing, <laughs> um, at least in theory. Now, do semi-Pelagians exist? Yes. Do Pelagians exist? Yes. Um, and I'm not trying to pick on Reformed people or Catholic people. All I'm saying is there's this weird, this what do we do with something that isn't, just Pelagianism 
And maybe it's not this formal way of explaining human will and salvation that we call semi-Pelagianism today. But are our options like orthodoxy, orthodoxy, ortho- you know, you're getting closer and closer to semi-Pelagian and it's all good, and then you just cross some boundary and now you're in semi-Pelagian and everything else beyond that is bad? Or like what happens... When we're talking about these kinds of things, human works, human will, and really it's not even a, you know, it's not really a question about about works per se. It's a question about like the human will, right? Where Where is, you know, where is the line or where are the lines where it starts to be not just different ways of explaining human willing in salvation, but like we start to we start to get these ideas creeping in in potentially subtle ways. And that I think is the more interesting question um, than like finding some lunatic on Twitter, which I'm sure they exist, uh, that are just like, yep, Pelagian, Pelagius was right. Like that's that's that could be funny, it could be fun. But like in terms of like actually useful conversations, it's that that's a much smaller, you know, statistical scenario although i will say i don't know it's been a long time since i went on twitter but back a couple years ago i did see an actual twitter account called um at baptist arminian no i'm sorry baptist arian sorry two very different things (laughs) um baptist arian or the arian baptist and it was literally just a dude that's like oh yeah the true church is is a baptist church that is literally Aryan, <laughs> um, which is just a bizarre, you know, specific thing that I feel like you really only encounter online because there's probably six of them worldwide. Um, but anyway, um, so yes, there are just people who latch on to things that, that we shouldn't be latching on to. But like, can you think of, maybe you want to think of examples to, to whatever or clarify think something I said, like this idea where, I like what you said, like pseudo. So we've got Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. And then what if, you know, even a step removed from semi-Pelagianism, where it's not, it's not necessarily the same teaching and it's not explicit, but this pseudo-Pelagianism seeping into um, somebody's theological system or the yeah. way they interpret something or the way they discuss salvation... Um, you know, Pelagi- Pelagianism, semi-Pelagian. This pr- particular example has to do with with how we're saved and all that stuff. But we could think of other heresies that do this as well. But I'm curious yeah. where, where, like, along that train track, where you want to go. Yeah. Well, here, this is what's interesting, dude. I've been thinking about this a lot leading up to Heresy Month and this being our fourth iteration and all, like, just the excitement of, like, we love doing this. We love talking about it, like, God and his word and his world from this like different perspective. And what's so interesting about heresy is in church history, at least. So speaking in that regard, when, when Arian, when, or sorry, Arius, when um, uh, Pelagius, when these people were living, there was no name necessarily for what we now refer to as this set of doctrine is a heresy and is wrong or is condemned is not biblical, but like to them, in a sense, like they were just trying to live faithfully and understand God and his word and his revelation at their point in history. 
and they didn't have the I don't know if you want to call it a blessing or a curse of context and in, 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 in history, but you know, for, for these people, they're just trying to understand like me as a Christian. And this is something that came up last time we talked about Pelagianism, but we talked about like Pelagius was like a new Testament Pauline scholar, like dude was really intelligent, really well learned, knew the scriptures well, especially Paul. So it's not like he's just like trying to go out on, you know, Twitter, or, you know, in his world, the the public markets or the public square, like he wasn't trying to just go out and blatantly like teach falsehood. It has been shown that like, here's a teaching that existed. We took it and compared it over and against what we see in scripture and finally determined, yes, that is errant and problematic and thus don't continue. But again, the history ebbs and flows. I imagine that most average common churchgoers do not know who Pelagius is. They don't know if you said what's Pelagianism, they would not know how to describe it. Same for semi-Pelagianism. And so we, you and I, as like biblical studies and theology and master's degree earners, like... We have this idea of like, here's heresy, capital H. Like, th these are the things we like to talk about. It's fun to poke fun at all those, you know, those goofy heretics from history. Um, but how does this like exist in us today? Especially in those of us who might not know these broadly obscure categories. Um, like, I'm just trying to picture just even some random person out in the world. Some, you know, some person who has no church ex uh, experience or history and if you were to go up to them and ask them what's Pelagianism, and they'd have no idea, and so you'd describe it to them, and they would just be, I think, pretty confused. Like, what do you mean? Like, talking about your grace and original sin and these concepts that, like, are probably pretty kooky to them. Um, and so on one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I find myself constantly thinking, like, oh, yeah, maybe a lot of people, at least, again, generally speaking, and this is like, I realize this when I have conversations with friends at work or um, you know, parents or in-laws who, who like, you know, people that don't study this stuff. Um, like a lot of this is pretty, like you're getting into some like really nerdy nitty gritty. That's not to say it's not important, but again, just your average churchgoers, I don't think are thinking about this. They're not thinking about Pelagianism. They're not thinking about semi-Pelagianism. And they certainly are not asking the question you just asked me, <laughs> um, talking about pseudo and neo ideas of Pelagianism. But Again, I, I say all of that, but I think that's just a problem of the church today as a result of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. Really, when you get down to it, so like the hot take that I'm perhaps trying to make is that like we find ourselves in the 21st century in a time and a place where, again, broadly speaking, I recognize there are really good, faithful, just like orthodox churches, but like generally and broadly speaking... There are so many, you know, mega churches and these big, large, almost corporation-like churches that trace their roots back to people like Charles Finney, um, back to, you know, t Great Awakenings and the things that happened in, in our history. Um, and as a result of, as a result of perhaps errant teaching at, at that juncture, we now find ourselves in a place where we're not even thinking about it. And most of our people aren't even wise enough or trained to even want to think about it. Like what I'm trying to say is like when I think of other eras in church history, granted, maybe th this sort of thing has always just been the case. But I think of like traditions that are um, perhaps far more catechized, like traditions that like this stuff is known and learned. And it's not just something you're nerdily interested in, but it's like you just know it because it's a part of your life and your rhythms and your routines. Whereas like we don't have that today. Like for most of us, we're so 
combated by TV and cell phones and media and just wanting to be distracted that like, we don't have interest in things that take longer to discuss and to talk about or, or, or whatever. Um, but again, so it's interesting that that's like the, the culture we sort of find ourselves in. That's the sort of the, the general common church and church goer mega church. Um, and so again, this, this idea, so we already talked about Pelagianism. Let me give you capital S capital P semi Pelagianism 101. Um, it, it sort of took this like middle of the road approach to depravity. So we are depraved, but not like totally so. And so semi Pelagianism allows that humanity is tainted by sin, but not to the extent that we cannot cooperate with God's grace on our own. So semi-Pelagianism is, in essence, partial depravity as opposed, as opposed to total depravity. We are sinful, but we can still recognize the truth. We can cooperate with God's grace, and we can choose to seek Christ. So we need, we need God's grace to be saved, but we can take the first step towards Christ on our own, apart from grace. And a lot of that description of, of semi-Pelagianism, I think, sounds like a lot of the ways that we even think about theology. Like most of your average churchgoer thinks like, yes, I need God's grace, but I took the first step. You know, I, I raised my hand. I said this prayer. I acknowledged Christ at a service when I was 13 years old. Um, like, I think in a lot of ways, a lot of people are are li- living in this, Lucas. Like, I think I think a lot of people are in this, this semi-Pelagian camp. Again, not because they chose to be, not because they were like, oh, I know this is a condemned heresy, but I really just want to like book against the you know the curve so to speak (laughs) yeah that's no yeah i think that's that's really interesting and when like you said uh charles finney specifically that stood out to me like um like that is a very hot take like (laughs) the american church is what it is today because of semi-pelagianism i love that take like that would be that would be like retweet like like saved screenshotted sent to the to the to the group chat you know like that's i love I, I love that because it's so like you know you i don't know out of left field to me but i do think that's actually really like because what i said earlier where you know pelagianism is often we talk about like oh pelagianism the the, the pelagian controversy was the church figuring out are we saved by works or not okay fine that's a good like you know base level sort of freshman introduction to Pelagianism. But especially when we start getting into semi-Pelagianism, really the question is the question of the human will. And as you pointed out, the question of depravity. How is it that humans are affected by sin and what does that mean for us? And what's interesting, framing the question that way, which, you know, is is, uh, I, I think, is important for understanding the Pelagian controversy to begin with, but especially, like, you won't under... Semi-Pelagians aren't just, you know, half-hearted Pelagians, right? Like, like when, when, when we look historically and there's this semi in front of these ideas, because there are semi-Aryans as well. Like, it's not that it's the same thing, but half-heartedly so, or they're, you know, they're quiet about it. It means, like, there's... There's actually a like, there, there's important differences that differentiate these people from Pelagius and his followers or whatever. Anyway, it's very obvious just in reading like Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, just like like the very broad brushstrokes um, of semi-Pelagianism. The question is the human will and how sin has or has not 
uh, bound that will, right? These are questions that come up because of Augustine's legacy. These are questions that come up in the Reformation. Erasmus and Luther talking about the bondage or the freedom of the will, like all these sorts of things. And to frame the question with the question of the will, not to get into a big, um, you know, philosophical hoopla about what 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 a will is, what the faculty of the will is, but from the perspective of, um, he, you know, the way we as humans live, to frame the question as that of willing rather than working really sets into perspective, I think, what you're saying. And Charles Finney is such a good example because if you read, like, he, for those who aren't familiar, I think we, did we talk about him in uh, Christians of History once or something? Um, but for those not familiar, um, he was a uh, Great Awakening or Second Great Awakening, somewhere in there, um, sort of sort of evangelical preacher um, in New England, I believe. And he had this whole, he was a revivalist and, and he had, he literally had a system for making revivals happen. And you can find, I forget the name of it, but there, he, there's a sermon he preached, um, which is him explaining how to make a revival happen. And it's literally like a three-point plan, or a, I don't know how many points there are, but it's literally a step-by-step plan where if you do this, and you do that, and you do that, the conditions will be such that you can be reasonably sure that, and in his, you know, he ties it back, the Spirit of God will move and will cause a revival. And you read it today, and it's just all the human will. It's him willing to set up this revival meeting in such a way with the certain conditions that um, he will essentially be able to, you know, reliably predict the movement of the spirit. And this is a huge, the the revivalist tradition is a huge um, bedrock level, foundational level component of American Christianity, especially evangelical Protestantism. Um, but it's also alive and well. There are there are people who still go to tent revivals every year, you know, like it's not it's not dead. It's not just a, a foundational part of our history. And it's interesting to think about what that does, quote unquote, psychologically to a culture, to a to a religious culture, and also to a culture generally. Because when you think of the American ethos right it's it's like it's cliche to to critique it even at this point because it's so at least in sort of the circles you and i come from it, it's very it's very common to, to you know this this rugged individualism this this self you know sort of egocentric view of my role in the world the my role in society focus on individual rights and liberties as freedom from any kind of responsibility or oversight or restriction. Um, like you, you look at all that and really it is in many ways, the American Christian ethos together um, is, and, and you know, I'm, I don't want to make these absolute statements, but hopefully people can, can recognize, you know, I'm speaking in, like you said earlier, generalities historical summaries, that kind of thing. But it really is a, a, an ethos of um, the autonomy of the will, 
right? That I have the autonomy to make the decisions of what I'm going to do for work, where I'm going to live, how, how am I, what I'm going to do for fun, you know, and, and the government can't tell me otherwise and my neighbor can't tell me otherwise. And I'm not, I'm not even trying to say that, that all that's good or bad, but transpose that to a, um, a religious key, a theological key. And we're talking about evangelism. We're talking about um, preaching the gospel, the response to the gospel. And it really is sem- you're like, you're, you're, I think you're on to something because it really is semi-Pelagian to say, of course God saves me. Um, but at the end of the day, part of that is, you know, I have to say yes to God. And it's not that we don't say yes to God, but what actually saves us, right? Is it the fact that we said yes to God and God was sort of just waiting, you know, with all the God stuff that only he can do, he was just waiting in the background until you did the first step, right? Um, And I think that that is the essence of this, like it's literally the essence of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism is this idea that our will is either totally free or or is is free in enough to make that first movement towards God. It's not that our will and this might be, you know, for for a certain strain of Augustinianism, you know, it, I would say it's not that we don't cooperate with God. Salvation here we, here's my hot take. Salvation is synergistic. We, we, our will and our activity, our, our actions do cooperate with God because if God tells me to do something and I do it, I am cooperating with the Spirit, but I don't make that move of the will towards him, right? What scripture reveals is that we are given a new will. We're given a new life. We're made alive by the Spirit in Christ and that's how we cooperate. It's not that I determine, I'm convinced that this is the right course of action. I take that first step and then God swoops in and does the rest of the work or whatever. Um, And I think that that question, like how do we view our will? Is our will free to make these decisions or not? Is a very difficult i think question to sort of conceptualize and talk and think about but also a very very subtle way for some kind of you know pseudo pelagian um like like pelagianism to kind of radiate through right and it's not that it's actually this thing that we call Pelagian or semi-Pelagianism, but how many people, like in general, Christian, non-Christian, how many people do actually live or think in such a way that recognizes the limitations of our human will, right? What we are actually able to will and desire and act on, and the way that salvation from from top to bottom yes it's it's synergistic because i cooperate with the spirit that's what sanctification is but salvation is monergistic too and i'm not just being contradictory it's all god god's the only one who actually does anything 
I didn't die on a cross, you know. <laughs> um, Jesus is the one who saves us, and and we do respond to that, but that response doesn't come from within myself, right? And that's where I think semi-Pelagianism goes wrong. As much of an improvement as it is over Pelagianism, <laughs> um, it's I, I don't have the ability in myself. I'm given the ability, but I don't have the ability natively to respond to God, to move towards God, right, in, in any sense. Um, but that's really interesting to think about the way in, in, in an almost unspoken sort of just general, like, zeitgeist kind of way, um, our religious culture that, that, that you and I are located within, in so many ways, has this sort of proclivity right not not saying it's all you know pelagian but just it has this we're, we're inclined to a certain error somebody else might be inclined to a different sort of error but it does seem uh it does seem plausible to me that for precisely the reason you pointed out in this revivalist history we have this proclivity towards this sort of emphasis on our own ability to make the right choice yeah well, and what's so interesting is, again, we're, we like to study history. Like you and I, we like history. We especially like church history. And so someone is going to look back one, two, six, three hundred, 300, who knows how long. But they're going to look back at the era of history right now that's happening today. And they're going to study it. They're going to be like, broadly speaking, in America in 2023... Christians believed this and existed this way. And they're going to talk about like how far they've progressed and how errant we were. Like, that's just when we when we've studied history, like that's in when people were living it, it was just like the now it was just like you had your average churchgoer, you had your average farmer, your average person, they were just trying to live in their world. Um, but again, his, the, the, the benefit of history is that we can look back and see both in regular human history and in church history ways in which like, yeah, we were really wrong on this thing. And we fixed it. Yeah, we were really wrong on this thing. And we got it right. Um, and I think when, when I've thought about this problem before, like when I, and by problem, I mean the broadly speaking general American church, like it, it's pretty shallow, you know, it's a mile wide, but an inch deep. Um, and when I've thought about like, how do we fix this? How do we fix this? Well, I think it's by like having conversations like this, by, by recognizing the root of what we are doing today, you know, the, the seeds that were sown, even the way that I've thought of history the way that I've thought of the events that have occurred in time and in space over and against how I live now. Like, I think sometimes we, we as like modern people, we live with a mindset of like, well, I mean, we can't, we literally can't go, we, we, <laughs> living in the present. We've had episodes on time, dude, you and I have get, gotten real, real fun on time, but like living in space and time now, we, we can't look forward. I mean, we can guess what's going to come, but all we can ever do is look back. And so these same people, when we talk about Pelagius, when we talk about Charles Finney even, again, I think generally speaking, Charles Finney probably wasn't going out maliciously to try to like be a problem or perhaps sow what we are reaping today. I don't think that was his intention, but like history has shown that that, that is just the case. He was a person who lived in a time and a place and what he taught and did had ramifications in history. Like that idea should, should scare us when we do anything, that like this action, this belief, this teaching that I'm doing now, what are the ramifications going to be 300 years from now? 
Like, I don't think most people think that way, but I think we should. Um, the question that I want to sort of pose to you, Lucas, like, who's worse in history? Pelagius or Charles Finney? Because I think we would look back and be like, Pelagius, because he's a heretic. But again, Pelagius was living in a time and a place trying to do a teaching. His teaching was condemned as heretical. And so, like, for, for most of the time, people stayed away because they were, like, heretical. But when it pops up again in these different ways, again, I don't think Charles Finney was trying to be Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. But here we are today talking about how, like, his teaching directly impacted things and has given us this, like, broadly speaking, semi-Pelagian ism or is <laughs> do, do you get what i'm saying so like that that idea of like that's my, i guess my question of who's worse pelagius or charles finney and i know that that is even a weird question to ask but what are your thoughts when, when, after i say that yeah i mean i think i would I would maybe be inclined to say, like, it depends on the context, which is a horrible answer to your question. Um, because, like, like the other the other way to look at it is, like, um, the idea... And, and, you know, to be clear, again, we are talking about these ideas. Um, I, we're not imputing anything to individual people. But, like, like, if it wasn't Pelagius, it'd be somebody else who came along and, and misconstrued God's grace the way he did. Um... But anyway, like you don't, it, you, you know, it, it's not, I don't think it's correct to say like, oh, without a Pelagius, you don't get a Charles Finney. I don't think that's true. But what I do think is true is the, the, the spirit of the ideas that we identify as Pelagianism, which directly correspond to the, the rise of semi-Pelagianism, obviously, but then these later instantiations of this kind of approach to salvation, the gospel, human activity, sin, all that grace, all that stuff is, is something that in its, con, you know, its continuous con, or continual reverberations throughout church history, like it's not so much that every generation there's a new group of people finding Pelagius's writings and and identifying themselves by by being influenced by him but you can the reason you can call things right semi-pelagian and and etc cetera, etc cetera, um and in so far as you're correct to do that you know and you're not just slandering somebody who you disagree with or whatever but like assuming there was there was truly some teaching that 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 or, or some statement that reflected a semi-Pelagian attitude or whatever, or a Pelagian-ish attitude or whatever. Like, it's because these ideas continue to have influence, even where, you know, the individual who propagated them doesn't. Because I don't think a lot of people who aren't in, you know, they're not into American history, um, American church history, that kind of thing, um, they're probably also not very familiar with Charles Finney as an individual or what he did or how he did it, what he was, what he said. Um, but it would be, it would be a mistake to say that those kinds of ideas haven't continued to impact the church um, and the culture of the place where he worked and, and where he contributed really significantly, historically speaking, even if his name isn't, you know, 
over a, a built very many buildings places and i'm sure there are just because he was influential but um so i'm kind of dodging your question i guess but but i think like the point too is is sort of the the flip side of the coin of what you were saying where it's like like on, on one level obviously we can't do this fully but on one level there there's there's a sense where it would probably do us some good to meditate on um our relationship to the future future generations sometimes um and on another level for and and i'm thinking especially for sort of the the sort of like layer of the church that i exist in right i'm i'm theologically educated and trained i have teaching responsibilities within a christian school and within my church um and so you know i'm the the ministries that god has given me place me in a particular role where um i actually have you know some not so much leadership but some some power over how people who are who are being taught by me come to to think theologically and practice their faith and and what they believe and so for particularly for people in that kind of a role preachers teachers evangelists um church leaders of all kinds you know like parachurch uh, ministers people who are responsible for teaching especially and then people who are responsible for preaching and the proclamation of the gospel how like you're not going to go around and conduct a survey in your congregation and come back and learn that 32% of your parishioners are Pelagians. But what you might be able to do is start to hear things being expressed in a way where you realize there's a bunch of people who have, you know, who, who think that Jesus was made by God, or they think that humans make the first step in their salvation. Um, and what is your responsibility as a preacher, teacher, leader um, in the vocation and the ministry that God has given you to serve the church to not critique stuff, um, but to teach the truth, right? To actually put forward what is true. Um, in your preaching and teaching so that people who are small and grow up in your congregations um, are able to have that strong foundation. People who are older are able to work through and correct things that uh, are maybe incorrect that they, like baggage they bring with them. And, you know, when those who are preachers and teachers and leaders in the church um, and also in other contexts, like you and I, in addition to all the other things we're going to stand before God for, you know, we're, we're publicly speaking right now. And there's a certain responsibility, not that we have any authority <laughs> at all, but just that like, you know, more people, like somebody's listening. It's not just you and me chatting. So there's that added level of responsibility that we're going to be responsible for the words we've said. And, and in bigger and smaller ways, are we aware of that? Look on the lookout, not 
in a heresy hunting way, but on the lookout in a way of, I care about my flock. You know, I'm a pastor and I care about this group of people that God has given to me to shepherd. And being a shepherd means you you beat away the, the wolves and it means that you protect your sheep from outside attacks and it means that you lead them to nutritious pastures that have plenty of food. And, and so, like, you need to be aware of that if your sheep are all, you know, listening to some podcast or watching some TV show or reading a book and it's making its rounds through your congregation and they're coming away with these faulty ideas from it, like a shepherd who sees that his sheep or a bunch of his flock are all gathering around like poison oak and eating that, I would imagine he's going to be like, well, no, don't do that. That's not good for you. It's going to hurt you. And he would shepherd them over to this lush green grass or whatever it is that sheep eat. And and so, I don't know. I think that's the, that's the flip side of the coin too, where it's like, it's not just a introspective sort of like, where am I falling in this grand story that God's writing? But it's also where, for those of us who have any degree of, of teaching responsibility is especially how are you thinking through as a church leader, as a minister, as a cl- cl- member of the clergy, as a, um, a writer, whatever it is. Um, con- and if you're none of those things, you're not off the hook conversations you have with your coworkers at the, at the water cooler or whatever, right? Like how are you thinking through how you are holding up the truth and responding when it com- when the time comes to these ideas that might be very implicit and and subtle and not obvious but really problematic like oh i basically take the first step in my salvation right and then you got to work through why that's wrong and, and the damage that does and we can do that we and whatever but i don't know that's something to really i think think about is this this subtle heresy and, and, you know and, and i'm using that kind of loosely but um the ways that these things crop up unexpectedly and i don't mean you're surprised to learn one day that someone has started reading you know a condemned heretic and agreeing with them but even less you know even more of a insidious cropping up than that yeah i think that's that's all i've really got no to say. that's good and you know you know what this you know this has really shown me it has shown me the immense measure and size of god's grace that despite like our every best effort because again most people are i think good intentioned like obviously sinful but like most people i don't think go out and behave in just like insidious insidious ways they don't just like go out and try to kill people everywhere they go um so yeah like (laughs) that would be that would be spooky um but yeah like god's god's grace is like big insufficient and covers us in ways that we don't even understand or appreciate um that that people throughout thousands of years people have lived in their times and in their places and just tried to make sense of the world and, and love god and love neighbor um, but failed in so many great ways. And we're living in that now. It will be history some to somebody someday. But like 
God's grace has been there through all of it, saving people, loving people, like, so semi-Pelagian, Arian, whatever, like, obviously, yeah, don't just endorse rank outright heresy, um, but yeah, like Lucas is saying, evaluate your heart, evaluate your mind and your teaching for ways in which these things still come up and inform how we live and move and breathe in the world. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, I, 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 that's it was so interesting when I finally, like, in, in prepping this episode, when I landed there and I started landing on these ideas, because I, I went into it like, where does semi-Pelagianism exist today? Look at this group and look at this group and, like, look at these people who act as actual semi-Pelagianism or semi-Pelagians. But what I realized, I was like, shoot, we're all just sort of semi-Pelagian. And I mean, that's just like how it is. <laughs> um, but, 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 but you made this point earlier, and I think it's worth saying, um, a lot of Reformed Protestants will look at Arminian Protestants and, like, categorize and label as outright semi-Pelagians. And I think, like, you should be careful, because that's just, like, broad-stroking a belief system and labeling them heretics. I think there are some very good Arminians and people who are very good and faithful followers um, within that tradition. Um not what you know not what i drive with but like that's neither here nor there what i'm trying to say though is like i don't know we're we're just we're living in 2023 you know it's very soon going to be crossing into a new year 2024 and so as you do so like why not just be more loving more compassionate more like do what lucas said too like if you <laughs> i have so many thoughts i apologize like my mind is like a thousand different places i'm tr as i'm trying to wrap it up but like I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Like, it's just like the, the measure of God's grace, the, the, the measure of like how, um, as flawed as we might be, as often as we might fail, as, as frustrating as living in the world is like, God is good. God is gracious and he will continue to be so. So anyway, that's all I have to say. Sorry. I feel like so rambly at the end. Amen. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot like, this is not, um, you know, the end of a conversation. And I'm sure that even as I'm thinking back, even now at the end of this hour, like there are things I'd probably phrase differently or, or want to think more about or, or whatever. But um, I think it's just, it's just, it's interesting to look at um, heresy, you know, as, as a meaningful, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's important to have as a category theologically, um, ecclesiologically, historically, um, and to and to also look at the ways that those heresies often reach beyond the boundaries of their, you know, their limits, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and we will, we will, um, won't, won't, won't say any specifics, but we will also over the next uh, couple weeks be talking about more in our traditional format of here is, here is a, a teaching that was put forward by a group that is actually heretical <laughs> um but we will get there as 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 we get there so i think i think that'll probably do it for for this evening to uh today yeah totally um it's, this episode is so good like i was so excited when we sort of landed on this idea um and I'm, I'm, I'm excited for year four just blows my mind. Like, I can't believe that. I mean, I can't believe that we've basically been doing this podcast every week for three and a half ish years. And I can't believe we're now on our fourth heresy month. 
so thank you for listening to us go on and on and on about obscure and less obscure and just like the deep philosophical theological thoughts um because at the end of the day like when i i do this because i want people to like think deeply and think meaningfully and engage in ways that perhaps they haven't um because it really does shape how you love god and love your neighbor so Thank you for listening to us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter, X, whatever, uh, Instagram threads at Doxology Podcast. You can email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. Send us your feedback, questions, episode ideas, whatever it might be. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, when you're on social media, when you're living in the world, be nice. Be nice scene. Peace out. See ya.